Well, good morning. My name's Andres. If I haven't got any chance to meet you, I serve as pastor of adult ministry here at Christ the King, and it's great to be able to share God's word with you this morning. So the scripture reading comes from the book of Acts, chapter 16, verses 11 to 24. Uh, there are black Bibles there in front of you that you are welcome to grab. Uh, this text can be found on page 925. Or if you've got an app, you can also pull up the Bible there as well. I'll ask you to keep it open throughout the sermon since I'll be referencing it often throughout. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 24. Hear God's word to you this morning. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And they came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I do ask that the words that I speak would be an accurate reflection of your own heart and character, and that these words would cause a life transformation as we leave this place to live as your faithful ambassadors in the world. I pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our friend uh, Doug Paul released a book last year in which he writes the following account. By 1912, the number of cars operating in New York City exceeded the number of horses. And by 1917, the last horse-drawn streetcar was officially removed from circulation. 
the car effectively brought an end to horses as a way of transportation. In 1907, the Ford Motor Company manufactured 10,000 cars. In 1915, that number ballooned to over 470,000 and took another leap in 1920 to almost 1 million cars. Ford was scaling growth and scaling it fast. You could have any car you wanted at an affordable price, so long as it was a Model T and so long as it was black. But then things started to go south. General Motors went to the mattresses preparing for an all-out market war with the tagline, a car for every purse and purpose. Rather than only offering one new thing, a new black Model T, GM started to reflect the needs of a shifting culture. They introduced the possibility of trading in cars, financing options, innovative models, and upgrades that came out every year. In 1921, more than 67% of all cars purchased in the U.S. were built by Ford. In 1926, it was down to 33%. And by 1927, sales plummeted to 15%. There was a time when the Model T and the system that manufactured it was a wildly innovative concept. But the world around Henry Ford changed, readjusted, kept moving forward, and sadly, Ford refused to move with it. And so he resorted to copying the innovations of others rather than creating his own. Now, it's no secret that the church in the West is rapidly declining by almost any measure that we can use to gauge the church's vitality. The Kinder Institute out of Rice University, which has been tracking the beliefs and opinions of Houstonians for over 40 years, just released their most recent research results. A whole section of the survey is dedicated to uh, the secularizing trends of our city. Let me give you a brief summary. When the survey participants were asked over the years about their religious preference, where it was Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, another religion, or no religion, only 8% in 2008 chose no religion. Compare that to 22% in this year's survey. In 2008, 37% said they did not attend religious services in the past month, compared to 70% this year. Now, some of that was due to COVID, but even last year, it was already up to 53%. Finally, more than one-fourth of all Harris County residents asserted that religion was not very important in their lives, up from 10% in 2008. Do you notice the trends and trajectory? Now, as followers of Jesus who have experienced his love and his grace, our desire should be to see that same love, grace, mercy, and transformation extended to others who do not know him. But I am convinced that the only way these trends will change is if the church in America, including our church, recovers our identity 
as a movement. Now, what exactly does a church as movement look like? What do we mean by movement? Well, that's what this text so beautifully narrates and describes for us. This specific section details how the gospel first arrived in Europe and produced its first conversions. And it begins with the conversion of a businesswoman named Lydia, then continues with the exorcism of a slave girl, and finally ends with the conversion of a jail guard and his family. All happening in one city, Philippi. So, Let's follow along with the text and see what these three examples or models can show us about what it means to follow Jesus on mission in Houston 2021. So first, the conversion of a businesswoman named Lydia. The book of Acts shows us the Christian movement exploding, multiplying, and extending itself across all borders and barriers, but in very ordinary ways that all Christians were invited and expected to participate in. Now, as a part of this movement, Paul, formerly known as Saul, is converted, and he's tasked with extending the message of Jesus into new territories, which he begins to do. He embarks on what is known as his first missionary journey, traveling all throughout modern-day Turkey, spreading the gospel, making disciples, and birthing new communities of faith. Now, after he finishes his first preaching tour, he goes home, and he begins to receive updates and reports from the churches of their growth and expansion but also problems and issues that were arising in these new communities that were beginning to form. So he decides to embark on a second tour to strengthen the churches, encourage them, but also to correct the things that had gone wrong. Now on his way, he is taken on a detour by the Spirit toward an area that he hadn't been in before. There's a region called Macedonia, which is how the text begins. Now, this was the first time evangelization was attempted on European territory. So let me give you a bit of background. In 356 BC, when King Philip II of Macedonia, who was the father of Alexander the Great, annexed this area and this region, he renamed a city after himself. Philippi, that was conquered two centuries later by the Romans and became a very important way station between Northwest Asia and the Adriatic Sea. It was a city that was governed by Italian law, and as such, it was an Italian city in every legal respect, which was a privileged status reserved for only the most honored of Roman provincial cities. In short, Philippi was a microcosm of Rome. Paul crosses the Aegean Sea into modern-day Turkey, uh, into modern-day Greece from modern-day Turkey. So if you can imagine the map of that region of the world. Neapolis was the port city, which is where they land, and then Philippi lay eight miles inland. Now, up until this point, Paul's missionary strategy was simple. 
Whenever he would enter a new city or a new town, he would begin ministry by looking for a synagogue. Once he entered the synagogue, he would establish relationships and begin preaching Jesus as the Messiah, as Lord and Savior of the world. In Philippi, however, the Jewish population was sparse. And Jewish law dictated that 10 Jewish men were required in a town or a city in order to establish a synagogue. And so instead, the few Jews who were in Philippi maintained a prosige, which is a temporary place of prayer. And this is what Paul finds in Philippi, a prayer meeting outside the city gates by the river led by women. Now at the outset, we're introduced to a woman named Lydia. We learn that she is from the city of Thyatira, which was a northwest Turkish town across the sea. At some point, she had crossed into northeastern Greece and established her business base in the thriving cosmopolitan city of Philippi. She's an entrepreneur, seeking opportunities to expand her business. Now, Thyatira was known for its guilds of craftsmen, especially the production and the sale of this very expensive purple dye. Since the text tells us that she was a seller of purple goods, Lydia was likely a member of that guild, which would have been remarkable for any woman at that time. At the very least, it tells us that she was quite wealthy and had most likely bought into the purple dye franchise. Now beyond this, we learned that she was, to use the Greek term, a God-fearer. The ESV translates it as a worshiper of God. Now this was a term that was given to non-Jews or Gentiles who were investigating the Jewish claims of one God, and they were interested in learning more, studying more about the Jewish religion, which is why we find Lydia on the Sabbath day, gathered with other women by the river, praying together. At some moment, Paul and his companions arrive. They start interacting with them and start talking about Jesus and his kingdom. God opens Lydia's heart, the text says, to receive the message, and the text on her story ends in verse 15. After she was baptized in her household as well, She urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Lydia becomes the first documented convert to Christianity in all of Europe. And as a public sign of acknowledging her faith, she, along with her household, are baptized. Afterwards, it says she urged Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to accept her invitation to stay in her home, which was another sign that she was likely wealthy since she had to have a large enough home to house these four men. And there, we learn a bit later, in her large home, she began the first Christian church on Greek soil, welcoming other new believers into the fellowship of faith. Now, I want you to pay attention to what, is, what it is that these four men are doing to get to this moment where they have the first European convert in history. 
I don't think that what they do is complicated, but it is multifaceted. And I do believe that it's instructional for us. First, they are going. They are taking the initiative to find people, to talk to people, to listen to them. They don't simply set up shop, have the name church and say open for business and expect people to come to them. They are the ones who are going out and figuring out where are people hanging out? What are they doing? What are they talking about? Who might be interested and open to this message? Second, they're listening. The text says that they sat down, which is an interesting, great minor detail of the text, and they spoke to the women. No doubt they didn't come out and right away start evangelizing. They were expert listeners, learning what it is that they knew, what they cared about, what their joys and concerns were. Fourth, or third, they are proclaiming. When the opportunity came and presented itself, they spoke and they shared the message of the gospel in a way that resonated with whoever was open and listening. And fourth, they are accepting hospitality. They did not think that they were too holy to enter the home of this new convert. They were humble enough to receive another person's blessing. And because of all of this, they begin to see fruit from their ministry. Second, the exorcism of a slave girl. So the text tells us that Paul and his friends kept visiting the prayer meeting afterwards. And one day, as they're on their way there, they encounter another woman but of a very different kind than Lydia. This woman is given no name, no city of origin. She has no power, no wealth, and no freedom. She's at the very bottom of the social scale. And she's simply described as a female slave who had a Pythian spirit, is actually what it says in the Greek. Now, in Greek mythology, Pytho was this great snake with the power to tell a person's future or fortune, who was then killed by the Greek god Apollo. In Greek culture, those who had the power to tell the future, someone's fortune, were called Pythias. Some commentators then deduce that she was a prophetess at a nearby temple with oracles and prophecies. Luke uses the phrase here, a female slave with a Pythian spirit, as a substitute for demon-possessed. Now today, much of what passes for fortune-telling or psychic work is probably human intuition or guessing, done simply for the purpose of making money. But that is not what this episode is referring to. This was predicting the future of another order through the power of dark, evil, demonic forces. Now beyond that, this poor, slave, fortune-telling, demon-possessed girl was the source of money for the owners as a fortune-teller. 
People would come to her seeking guidance as to a present or a future situation, and she would give it to them, aided by demons. Now, exorcisms or demon possession is not something that we talk a whole lot about, at least in our environments, due to a number of factors, including our post-enlightenment, rational, modernist culture that sees the spiritual with somewhat suspicious eyes. But according to Scripture, the supernatural, including demons and evil spirits, are something that is very real, whether you believe in it or not. You know, myself, coming from a more charismatic background, I've seen exorcisms before and prayed for deliverance. We have brothers and sisters around the world, including some missionaries that we support, where the struggle against dark forces and evil is very real and a much more common occurrence. The text then tells us that she begins to follow them around and to shout, these men are servants or slaves of the Most High God telling you the way to be saved. Now, most likely... This was done in mockery, intending to disrupt the preaching, the proclamation of the message of the gospel. We see this actually happen often to Jesus in his ministry in the gospels and in other portions of the book of Acts, where other people do the exact same thing, intending to disrupt him and his message. And the text says that she didn't just do this once, but for many days. Finally, Paul, being fed up with this, which the text doesn't exactly tell us why, but we can come to a few conclusions, commands the spirit to leave the girl who's then freed and delivered from spiritual and physical bondage. And with the evil spirit out of her, she loses her divining powers, which means she's no longer valuable to her owners. Now here again, I want you to pay attention to what's happening that leads to this deliverance. Again, I don't think it's complicated, but it is multifaceted, and it is instructional to us. First, Paul and his companions, so simple, are praying. The text assumes that Paul, Silas, Timothy and Luke continued to attend the prayer meetings, which of course was characterized by much prayer and supplication. They were constantly on their knees begging God for strength and for mercy and for his favor and for his power. Second, they are patient. The text says that the girl continued to yell at them for many days. Now, how many days, of course, is undetermined, but these men waited to see, to hear, to learn, to listen, to understand what was going on. And third, they are spirit-filled. How did Paul know that what he was encountering was something of a supernatural order, not just a random girl yelling at them through the streets? I mean, what she was saying was true. They were servants of the Most High God, proclaiming the message of salvation. 
But because he had been praying, and because he had been patient, and because he was continually seeking to be filled with the Spirit, ultimately God gave him the wisdom and discernment to understand what was going on. But furthermore, he gave Paul and his companions the power to command this evil spirit to leave the girl. Now, we don't know what became of the girl because the text doesn't tell us. But we can assume, based on other similar episodes in the Gospels and in Acts, that she was filled with gratitude and with joy and joined the new community that had begun gathering at Lydia's house. So that now we have a wealthy, entrepreneurial businesswoman, her household, and a former demon-possessed, fortune-telling slave girl, all gathering to worship in community, extending the Christian movement. Third and last, the conversion of a jail guard and his family. Now, I didn't read uh, the rest of this chapter, which shows all that happens and you can do later. But many of you know the story. And even if you don't, I'll summarize it as I go throughout. After the slave girl is delivered from her spiritual and physical bondage, the men who owned her and were making a profit off of her dragged Silas and Paul to the marketplace. We don't know what happened to Timothy and Luke. And they bring trumped-up charges against them before the rulers. They begin to accuse them as disruptors and agitators. And then the men are ordered to be beaten with big, heavy wooden sticks many times and thrown into jail in the deepest cell where they are chained by foot to the walls. Now one commentator writes this. There would be no light at night and little light during the day. There would be little provision for sanitation or ventilation, so the stench would be terrible. Beaten backs would be subject to infection. Feet fastened in stocks would add physical discomfort. Unable to shift positions, prisoners would grow more uncomfortable by the minute. It is difficult to imagine a more terrible place. And what do Paul and Silas do as they sit in this cell in pain and agony and suffering? Well, the text says that about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They were able to find joy in the midst of their suffering. Now friends, I don't want you to think that these men had some supernatural gift that they were able to tap into at this precise moment. Or that they were somehow holier or closer to God than the ordinary average Christian. Paul will later go on to write these very same Philippians, these words. I have learned 
to be content whatever the circumstances. Do you know what it means to learn something? My daughter, Leah, who is eight now, uh, has been taking piano lessons for a couple of months. She had her first recital yesterday. And like anyone learning something new, she struggled a bit at the beginning. And she would get frustrated. And we would have to remind her, Leah, it's okay. You're just learning this. You're going to get better. But it takes practice. And you have to do it over and over and over and over again. You have to practice your scales. You have to read a lot of sheet music. You have to listen to your teacher. But eventually, you'll get it. You'll master the secret to the art of playing piano. This is what Paul means when he says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Like a child learning to play piano. Like a runner learning to hand off the baton. Like a quarterback learning to pass the ball into the end zone through trial and error, success and failure with the help and guidance of the Spirit, Paul and silence could get to a moment where in pain and agony and suffering, they could pray and sing hymns to God at midnight. Because they had learned to do so. And what is the result? The text tells us that there's a great earthquake, that the foundations of the prison are shaken, all the prison doors open and everyone's bonds are unfastened. The jailer sees this. He supposes that all the prisoners have run away and he's getting ready to kill himself when Paul stops him and assures him that they are all there. He then shares the message of the gospel with him and his house all of whom are then baptized at once. The guard then invites them into his home, makes food for everyone to eat, and throws a party. Now one last time, I want you to pay attention to what happens that leads to this conversion. First, there is joy in suffering. Paul and Silas had no logical reason for them to pray and sing in this moment. But through practice, with the help of the Spirit, they had learned to be content whatever their circumstance, which is an incredible testimony to the prison guard and to the other prisoners. And second, there's eating. Like in Lydia's case, they're invited to a new believer's home where they're given a meal and new relationships are formed. Missiologist Alan Hirsch writes, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. And with this, the church in Philippi is planted. Hardly a church plant by today's standards, especially in a city like Houston, but the seeds have been planted so that now 
we have a wealthy businesswoman, a former demon-possessed slave girl, and a Roman prison guard, along with their families, gathering to worship in community, extending the Christian movement. And that is all that Paul needs in order to move on and continue to extend the message of the gospel to other cities, towns, and regions. The church in the West, in the U.S., and in Houston is declining. But Jesus' promise that the very gates of hell would not prevail against her. The church that Jesus built is meant to be on the offensive, not the defensive. That is the picture of movement that the Gospels and the book of Acts and this section show us over and over again. We can recover that identity. But it begins by taking seriously these texts and learning from these early disciples how they shared the message of Jesus. As Peyton Jones writes in one of his recent books, we cannot expect New Testament results without New Testament practices. There is no one model, no one strategy, no one way to evangelize or demonstrate the message of Jesus. With Lydia, they are going, they're listening, they're proclaiming, and they're receiving hospitality. With the slave girl, they're praying, they're waiting, and they're being filled with the Spirit continually. With the jail guard, they're demonstrating joy in suffering, praising God through song, and eating with people. So that in just this one section, the gospel is spread through proclaiming the message rationally in discourse, through a power encounter against the forces of evil, and through the practical embodiment of a transformed life. Clay preached a few weeks ago about the diversity of gifts that God has given his people. We are all called to spread the message of Jesus, but how he uses us will be infinitely different because of how he has uniquely designed each of us to accomplish his purposes for the world. There is no one model. There is no one strategy. So what will you do to make disciples. What this section shows us is that it begins with following Jesus into mission. The mission is contextualized depending on the people and the environment. And out of that, new communities are birthed, formed, and nurtured. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift, the grace, the privilege that it is to be called yours, to be able to gather with your people on a day like this, to worship you through song and through prayer is an incredible gift. Yet you have also called us to be your people out in the world. The early Christian movement understood this as they lived as missionaries to the places you had sent them, wherever they lived, wherever they worked, and wherever they played. I pray that that same spirit of boldness and courage 
would go with us, continually filling us as we seek to extend your message to the people that you have sent us to. Not the big, not the strong, not the many, not the crowds, but like Paul, the Lydia's, the slave girls, and the jail guards. Keep us humble and ever grounded in your grace. Pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.